Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the 10th episode of Medieval Beginnings, a new close reading series from the London Review of Books. I'm Irina Dumitrescu, a contributor to the LRB. And I'm joined, as always, by Mary Wellesley, who also writes for the paper on medieval literature. Hello, Mary. Hello, Irina. In the last episode, we examined the work of psychological realism, written by the most famous author of the English Middle Ages. For this episode, we are looking at a group of texts that are decidedly more ephemeral and ambiguous. Short, anonymous, and fleeting, these are snatches of verse and song often scribbled into the margins of manuscripts almost all of them appearing in only one book. Today's discussion is about Middle English lyrics. And if you have the Norton Anthology Middle English Lyrics, we will be queuing each poem by its number. And for those who don't have the book, we will be putting links to the individual poems online in the show notes. So Mary, let's start with the basics. What is a lyric? And can you remind us what Middle English is? Okay, so Middle English is uh, the the form of English that is spoken after the Norman Conquest in England of 1066. So it's um, it's an uninflected form of the language, or increasingly uninflected form of the language, and it has a lot more French vocabulary in it. And it is it's the language of Chaucer. It's the language of the Gawain poet. And so when we talk about Middle English lyrics, we're really grabbing together a whole load of really disparate texts and sort of putting them all together in a big lump because they share sort of similarities of linguistic feature and to some degree similarities of form. But pinning down exactly what that form is is a, is a tricky, tricky one. The use of the term lyric to talk about these kinds of poems or songs, if we might think of them as that, and was really first used in the Elizabethan period. So it's not really a, a, a term that medieval people probably would have used about these texts. I think it's safe to say that there is an association with song and with music. We think that a lot of these texts originally went with music, and in some rare cases, the music still survives. But for the vast majority of them, we're dealing with texts that have become unmoored from their original musical arrangement and you know, sometimes there have been these acts of sort of musical reconstruction when texts have been sort of put onto some surviving music that doesn't necessarily go with it. And so we just, I think a lot of the time we just have to assume that we don't really know how these sounded when they were being sung, but that they most likely were sung. So where do we find them today? And, and what kind of corpus are we imagining? How many of them are there? There are a lot. I mean, one estimate I read was that there were about over 2,000 lyrics. When I was preparing for this episode and I was looking at the, the manuscript context, and it's this endlessly fascinating but incredibly complicated job to go and look at multiple different manuscripts. And often what you're dealing with is little tiny bits of text that are put in in the very end of a manuscript. So what we call the flyleaf, which is these sort of bits of parchment or paper that, that are kind of 
right at the end of the manuscript that are really blank. And someone has obviously kind of jotted these texts down, often not the main scribe. In one very famous example, we have a text which is written on what's called a binding fragment. So probably what was originally a roll, so a a, a legal document, most likely a very long, thin bit of parchment. And it's been cut up and reused in order to rebind manuscripts at a later date. And some kind of fragment of it has survived. And in that particular instance, in the 19th century, some binders in the Bodleian Library rebinding a manuscript come across this little fragment and they just sort of stick it into the manuscript even though it really bears no relation to the manuscript it's in. So they are formally very difficult to pin down. They're very often texts that have a single speaker, a single voice, but the nature of that voice is often kind of slippery, which is one of the things that's often so delightful about these texts is that they're so difficult to interpret. When you're dealing with texts like these that are as fluid and as complex, you feel this impulse as a scholar to go and look at the manuscript context and you think, okay, well, the manuscripts are going to tell us something really important. And often the manuscripts just take you off in a completely different direction and you realize that you're really scrabbling, looking for these tiny little clues. And you're just left often with this wonderful, I think, gorgeous sense of ambiguity because it's very hard to often know Are we talking about Christ? Is this a religious poem? Is this a secular poem? Is the voice, if it's, for example, the voice of a woman, is this meant to be ironic? Is it meant to be mocking? Is this actually possibly at some point authored by a woman? Is this an account of a woman's experience that is sensitive to her her experience? Or is this actually a sarcastic male rendering of female experience? So they are the kinds of texts that just invite you to to return to them again and again. And just to underscore some some of the points you made, and maybe this is a little bit obvious, but I think it bears repeating that when people encounter poetry in this time, or even lyric poetry, it's quite a different experience than it is today. It's not that you get a bound book or chapbook by an author whose name you know, um, and who has maybe a certain persona and is famous or is not famous. It's not even the way now you might have I don't know, Bob Dylan or Taylor Swift, who's known for composing a certain number of lyrics and uh, singing them. But also, people want to use parchment. Parchment is precious. So we talked about scribbles, but it's not the same thing as scribbles today on a scrap of paper, because it's it's really the, the maximal use of valuable material. Right? There's a reason to put things in the margins and in the fly leaves. Uh, you want to use that space because it's it takes a lot of work um, and money to prepare animal skin as paper, right? Yes, but equally, there's a clearly text that are not, it's not like looking at, say, a liturgical text, a copy of the Bible, something that has taken an enormous investment of time and resources. You know, it's a very, these um uh, scripts that are that take a lot of time, they require a lot of pen lifts, you know, as many hours of careful, considered scribal labor. Often these are works that are written in these kind of hurried, cursive scripts. You know, it's clearly someone wants to remember these 
these verses, they are important, but they they aren't given the same reverence that, for example, a Latin text would be given, especially a kind of Latin, you know, sacred text. And that's an important point. These are texts in the vernacular. They are inherently more ephemeral. The, the vernacular is not viewed in the same way that Latin is in this period. So it might be someone writing a poem from memory rather than copying it from another book, the way we might imagine, for example, Troilus and Crusade. Exactly. And and we have interesting evidence of that when sometimes we have a tiny little snippet of a text appears elsewhere in another manuscript context. And sometimes it's been mis seems to have been misremembered, or maybe it's a kind of version of the of the song. I often think actually when I'm I spend a lot of time singing to my two year old daughter and I I, I was thinking about this a lot in preparation for this episode, the way in which I kind of half remember these songs and I can't quite get the verse right. And everyone seems to have a slightly different version. And then I make up different versions because I don't really like the one that I was taught by my parents. And it really reminded me of these texts that we should see them as these wonderful, fluid pieces that, you know, have become fixed in manuscript, but they had this gorgeous fluidity when they were out in the world and they were probably very changeable. And we see that when we try to interpret them. Well, why don't we start with uh, one poem, which I think is one of the better known, I want to say famous, but maybe that's that's the wrong word for, for Middle English lyrics. But certainly if someone has heard a Middle English lyric, this is probably one of the ones that they've heard. It's Sumer is Ikumen In, which is number three in our book. Mary, will you read it for us? Yes. Summa is a coming in, luda sing cuckoo, groweth said and bloweth made and springeth a wood anew. Sing cuckoo, you ablateth after lom, luth after calve coo, bullock sterteth, book aferteth, murri sing cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. Well singest thou cuckoo, nay swick thou narrenu. Sing cuckoo nu, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo nu. It's so cute. <laughs> I love it. Okay, back to back to seriousness. Mary, can you tell us something about the context of this of this short lyric? Okay, so the main thing to say about this is that this is one of the very rare examples where the music is intact, and so we still know. The tune of this, um, it's actually, it's a round, it's for six voices, and it's its really wonderful. I really encourage listeners to go and Google Summer is a Coming In and um, find some of the renditions on, on the internet because it's amazing hearing it sung. And, the, well, just to give a bit of a translation for, for listeners, it very roughly translates as, Summer is coming in, loudly sing cuckoo. Groweth the seed, bloweth the mead, so like the meadow. So the seeds are growing, the meadow is blooming, and springeth the wood new. So, you know, the the, the forest is springing with leaf. Uh, sing cuckoo. The ewe bleateth after her lamb. The cow lows after her calf. The bullock leaps. The buck farts. This is, we seem to think, the earliest use of the word fart recorded in in the English language. Very important. Merrily sing cuckoo, cuckoo. Well, you sing cuckoo and never cease your, never cease your singing. Uh, sing cuckoo, sing cuckoo. Now sing cuckoo. Thanks for listening to this extract from Medieval Beginnings, a close reading series from the London Review of Books. 
To listen to the full episodes and all our other Close Reading series, sign up to our Close Reading subscription. Go to lrb.me forward slash close readings or click on the link in the description. 